Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. When I saw the title of Marlette Jackson and Aaron Dowell's article in Harvard Business Review, I instantly knew that this was going to be a bit of gold. So the title was Woke Washing, Your Company Won't Cut It. So woke washing, you may have heard of greenwashing. This is similar, right? You can't just smear a little marketing and branding on something and check it off the list. So with the woke washing, the idea is you can't just, for instance, you know, put out a diversity, equity, inclusion statement and be like, check, we're all done. We got it covered. No, 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 no. You really, and what Aaron and Marlette do such an artful job of explaining is you have to do the work internally first. And then eventually it can make its way into your marketing. So this episode is a bit more focused on internal dynamics, internal alignment, you know, kind of doing the work around culture that then your marketing sits on top or is an extension of, right? We've talked about the fact that marketing is like an iceberg. Yeah. And so you can't just like, put a bunch of stuff on the tip of the iceberg around diversity, equity, inclusion. It's just, it's not going to sustain and it's inauthentic. So I love this and appreciate this interview so much. It was the first interview I did where it was two people. And so that was new for me. I think it went pretty well. And I, you know, Marlette and Aaron are just, they are gracious. They are generous with their, with their wisdom and their insights, all while keeping things really practical so, you know, this is one, if you're out, you might want to take some notes. That's what I'm saying. So, you know, go out, walk around. We always have the show notes, but we also always have full transcripts and everything else on the Claxon Marketing website. So just know that that's there as a reference for you, because I think this is one where you're going to listen and want to dig deeper. I know I did. I was very inspired by them and also grateful to them. So, here you go, my interview with Marlette Jackson and Aaron Dowell. All right. So, Aaron, Marlette, thank you so much for being here with me today. I always like to know where people are geographically since we're just all in these little boxes and we're not like little screens. Erin, where are you joining us from? I'm in, I guess it's a suburb of Dallas. So technically I'm in Allen now, but I guess Dallas. Okay, Dallas. Marlette, how about you? I'm in the real Dallas. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're both in D- Dallas ish. Boom. <laughs> okay. He's from downtown. So, yeah. Dallas and Ambirons. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so a few weeks ago, you published an article in the Harvard Business Review called Woke Washing. Your company won't cut it. I read it. I loved it. 
And I instantly reached out to you both to see if you'd be willing to come on the show to talk more about woke washing, what you shared in the piece. And luckily for me and listeners, you were gracious enough to say yes. So kind of a little bit before we, we get into the meat of it, I find it helpful to understand like, how is it that people get to doing the work that they're doing today? So in this instance, the work that you're doing around woke washing um, and many other things. So will you share with us because you work independently, but also you collaborate a lot. So maybe Marlette, can we start with you and just share like, you know, what got you on this path and how you landed here and don't Aaron and Yeah. So I think I kind of, it was lived experiences really that kind of really motivated me to do this work of diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. Um, and I think it really caught wind for me in graduate school. So I was, I went to receive my PhD at a pretty elite private institution. And as I was kind of working through my PhD, I just felt oftentimes very isolated, very alone, didn't feel like I belonged. I was the only black person in my cohort. I was one of the few people from the South, one of the few people who came from a public institution for graduate school. And I was also a first generation low income student. So neither my parents had gone to college. And so it was a huge deal <laughs> to not only graduate from college, but then go on to this early institution and get a PhD. Do you want to name the institution or just allude to In it? the Bay Area. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Does it start with an S? Maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. That's it. We're just going to allude to it. starts with an allude S. Allude to it. So <laughs> it was, it was, I think, undergoing kind of the questions that I was asking myself, like, you know, how do I create this culture of community and belonging for myself? How do I find individuals who are like-minded to advance a lot of the, a lot of the, the themes and the sentiments that I had? So I started becoming involved in a lot of advocacy work in student groups. So I joined the executive board of our Black Graduate Student Association, helped co-create Grad Flip, which is for first-generation and their low-income grad students. And tried my best to kind of integrate myself into circles that did this work. So I became um, really uh, well acquainted with a lot of our DEI kind of administrators on campus. And it was going through that process. I, I received a fellowship that's supposed to help prepare, you know, individuals who come from underrepresented backgrounds for faculty positions. And it was actually that program. I was like, hmm, I don't want to be a faculty member. What I want to do is do the work that, you know, a lot of the administrators that I talked about were doing. I was like, this is amazing. Like, I want to, to create in a culture and a community that makes students like me feel as if they do belong, feel as if the backgrounds and identities that they come with are value adds and that we thrive because of and not in spite of our identities. And so... After graduation, I transitioned to doing that at that same institution, doing that type of work. And I also was doing a lot of consulting work while I was in grad school for a bunch of Bay Area tech companies. So working with some of the big names out there, trying to help them solve their issues around diversity, inclusion, and equity. And it was kind of doing all this work. I was like, this is kind of like my jam. Like, I felt like I was fulfilled and I felt like I got to leverage the, you know, quantitative and, and qualitative methodologies and skills that I gained in grad school and apply it to a problem that I felt like mattered. And to me, that was a great opportunity because I loved conducting research, but to apply to a problem that's not just going to be a small niche, you know, community is going to read it and care about it. No, like this is integral to everyone. And so the impact factor, I think, was really what made me gravitate toward it as well as my own personal experiences. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit about how I kind of got interested in, 
eventually decided to, to pursue this type of work. Thank you. Really interesting. All right, Aaron. So Marlette goes by way of the Bay Area and an institution that starts with S. Mm-hmm. And then she finds her way into this work. How about you? <laughs> so I am born and raised in Louisiana. And that's where I guess my origin story is. And I will, I guess to explain how I got here, I'll explain where I feel like I am now. And so I think that now for me, working in the equity space means breaking down the barriers and providing the resources to help people live and create as freely as they can. And that's sort of become kind of the through line of my experiences. So I'm from Louisiana. I will shout out my undergrad, the Xavier University of Louisiana. Um, And from there, I went to law school, which is where I pretty quickly realized that I would become what people now consider like a non-traditional law school graduate. And I referenced that experience because it was there that I had one of my first experiences that really started to give form to this concept of, you know, creating equity by allowing folks to um, live and create freely. One of the most meaningful projects for me during law school was an externship with the Entertainment Law Legal Assistance Program. I was grateful to my supervising attorney, Ashley Keaton, who allowed me to assist her with a project where she was helping Mardi Gras Indians to copyright or protect the intellectual property associated with their suits. If you know anything about Louisiana, you know anything about Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras Indians are a cultural icon. They're a staple of that community. But what would happen is these men would spend from the day after Mardi Gras one year to the Mardi Gras the next intricately cracking these suits and people would, you know, descend on New Orleans, you know, tourists and things, taking photos of them, selling their own photos and, you know, making money off of them while these men who put all this work into these projects, you know, aren't getting anything from that. And so it became a path to help them to, like I said, create more freely. Um, you can protect your rights. And in turn, you know, that gives you the, the space to be able to continue to create. And so that kind of influenced my next steps. So from law school, I ended up working, I worked at a compliance job that was, that was what it was. And then um, I ended up working for the governor's office for the Commission on Human Rights. And so in that space and here in Dallas, my professional roles have been equity from the through the lens of like Title Seven and Title Nine, right? So, investigating and evaluating and providing resources for discrimination, harassment, and retaliation based on our protected classes. I've also been able to kind of expand that out into more of like programming and outreach efforts, both working, you know, through working with Marlette, um, working at the commission helping to, you know, craft programs and initiatives that really help to meet the needs where hopefully the goal is that, um, again, we're, we're mitigating those barriers that allow people ultimately to bring their full selves to their work and to their lives and to be able to, to create. So I see now how kind of you two would have crossed paths. That makes some intuitive sense. Had you been collaborating prior to writing this article? So... Um, we had been doing some programming together, and I kind of referenced that before we began the podcast. Uh, most recently, we collaborated on a Pride Month program focused on disability, identity, and advocacy. And I really admire Marlette as you know as an author, but also just you know as a real visionary in this space. Um, and I think that we really push each other, you know, to you know take things to the next level and really bring what we view as areas of opportunity in these spaces. Okay. Thanks for humoring me on the backstory. But I, 
I, you know, I find like that, then you're like, okay, all right. And absent that, I don't know. I just feel like it's important context. So I always ask partially because I'm just curious by nature. And so it, <laughs> it's a bit selfish. I, I, I always like to out that. It's a little bit for me just because I like hearing people's stories. Let's talk about woke washing. Let's go there if you're ready. What is it and how does it relate to the current discourse around social justice? Thank you for that question. Because I feel like our, you know, the title of the, the piece kind of grabs folks and then they're like, wait, wait, what is this? Um, <laughs> it was a great title. I mean, it was <laughs> hands off on the title. And one of the things I appreciated so much about the article was it did have this very, very catchy title. And this is, this has depth. The article has such depth. It's like practical and actionable. And so anyway, I'll stop talking. I love it. Thank you for that. So woke washing, as we kind of talked about it in the piece and quoted, you know, the original source who, who titled this term, is really appropriating the language of social activism for marketing purposes, right? So it's taking kind of, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement and then creating some sort of campaign or advertisement to really kind of profit off of it to kind of demonstrate or show, you know, in some companies' eyes and allyship or advocacy, but really it's for corporate gain, right? So woke washing is in a sense kind of trying to demonstrate you care about, you know, different social justice issues, when in reality, you're just using it as a marketing ploy. And if someone were to take a little bit of a deeper dive or, you know, hold kind of like a a lens to the internal inequities that you have in your organization would have lots of questions and, and raise flags. And, you know, so your second question about you know, kind of why it's important in this current discourse, I think it's increasingly important because a lot of times now more than ever, we've had a lot of different platforms where folks are able to be more vocal about what it is they're feeling, what it is they're experiencing, and what their lived reality is. And that is something that is unprecedented. And so because we kind of have this movement that has been going on for quite a while, at the same time moving with a lot of platforms that allow, amplify the voices of individuals who may not have that voice before. And, you know, the elephant in the room, we're in a global pandemic. So a lots of issues are highlighted that kind of also correlate with these questions of largest racial injustice, right? We know communities of color are hard hit by COVID-19. So it's like, you know, when does it stop? hard hit by COVID-19, consistently seeing images of individuals who look like you, your family, your friends being brutalized, you know, by the very individuals who are supposed to protect you. And now we're in a space where folks are paying more attention and that means companies are paying more attention. And since kind of like the public agenda has shifted as such, now we see the corporate agenda shifting to kind of meet the need because they feel as if in order to appease their consumers, they need to kind of dive into what their consumers care about. And we've seen the consequences of not, and we've also seen the consequences of woke washing, right? Where lots of different employees and former employees are saying, oh, this is interesting. You care about X identity. How many women executives do you have? How many black executives do you have? How many people at the intersection of all these identities do you have represented and even more than representation? What is your retention rate? What is the culture like? Why is it that you cannot keep individuals that are your quote unquote diverse talent, um, which 
Aaron, I don't even like that term because of one person can't be diverse. Diverse is a relational concept. Diversity is a relational concept. And so um, I'm going a little bit of a tangent here, but I think to answer your question, book washing is appropriating social activism for corporate gain. And we're seeing a high uptick in that right now due to kind of the unique circumstances that we're in. Yeah, yeah. So, so woke washing is similar to greenwashing, which I think listeners are somewhat familiar with. The same idea that companies, you can think of like oil companies, really got on that bandwagon and yet weren't really walking that talk at all. And in that original piece that you mentioned, um, I'm forgetting the name of the author and I meant to write it down. The author of the original piece is Arwa Madawi. And so she's kind of the originator. And then uh, there have been some other women of color like Francesca Subande, who also have written critically on that piece. So um, if you want to dig deeper into the uh, the title concepts, then those are two women to, to watch for. Great. And we'll put everything that we reference, we'll go into the show notes because I know that lots of people listen to this podcast while they're walking. And, and a little bit driving, but what's interesting is people consistently, when I get emails from listeners, they say, well, I, I went out walking with you today. I'm like, did we, did we walk together? Um, so don't, if you're out walking, don't worry about it. We're going to put it on the show notes. So you mentioned this a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious both of your, your thoughts about why, why do you think some companies are responding in this moment? And Marla, you, you already sort of alluded to this, but I think it's important to really call the question about like, why now, as opposed to sooner about, you know, these questions of social justice. And, and I think, you know, you were saying because the public is demanding it, but if we're being, I, I guess to me, I guess there's a question underneath that, which is there has been, there have been folks demanding this for a long time, being very vocal about it. And we have not seen that that didn't move the needle. So why now? I would say first, uh, if you were to ask, you know, probably a number of Black folks that question of why now, I think they would echo that question. But, you know, I, I think that now that we all seem to have a bit of a shared um, focus here and a shared goal, I think that the answer to the corporate question of that is, um, as Marlette said, you know, we're captivated for better or for worse by the pandemic. And also something that I think we referenced maybe just only a, a little bit in the article is companies are starting to see the effects of cancel culture, again, for better or for worse. So I think it remains to be seen what the long-term effects of cancel culture are, right? Because we can see, um, you know, there might be trends on, you know, on social platforms where, you know, calling for these, basically these electronic boycotts of, of some of these big brands. And I think for some of them, even if it doesn't directly adversely affect their bottom line, I think that, you know, even living that moment in the press is probably, you know, sufficiently painful that at this moment, it's like, you know, you'd be a fool to ignore mm -hmm. um, the, the messaging that, that you're getting here. So I think that's a big uh, part of it. For listeners who may not be familiar with the term, will you explain what cancel culture is? Sure. So cancel culture refers to this tendency um, that originates primarily in social media to call for a person, you know, so a celebrity or a company or an entity to be canceled, which means that we withdraw our support, our, you know, our attention or our, our dollars from the support of whatever this entity is. And it's usually because they've made some sort of very public misstep. And again, this is all thanks to, um, as Marlette speaks to many times, you know, social media, which is a phenomenon that is relatively young. So I think that's part of the reason for the answer to that why now. Thank you. And thanks for the 
the explanation of the term cancel culture. (laughs) Are there any case studies air quoting that a little bit, especially because I know that you walk in, in academic realms and that case study means a very specific thing. So case study light uh, or examples you've seen the past few months of companies who seem to really be getting this right. I feel like, like we see a lot of examples of it going sideways and wrong, you know, feel free to share those too, because one is important and it's interesting, but I also want to make sure that we have examples of like, and if you're going to do this, here's how you do it right. So what comes to mind for, for both of you? Or who comes to us? <laughs> so first, I will speak generally about you know companies with the the capital to spread around a bit differently than they've been doing historically. I think we are seeing so. For instance, you know YouTube has created I think a hundred million dollar fund to support Black creatives. We're and we're seeing trends like that across industries, and I think that the important thing is. I think there are two important things. One is, I think that's a a big example of getting it right, meaning companies need to recognize that the issue, though it originated in this moment, unfortunately, from George Floyd's murder, extends beyond the very pressing and very real needs for police reform and things like that. The issues that have enraged so many people result from the fact that Black folks have been disenfranchised and experienced these inequities for centuries across the board. And so we need the opportunities to, like I you know, said from the beginning, we need the opportunities to do everything at the, with the same resources, so to create and things like that. So I would say that funneling that money in is a great starting point. But as, again, Marlette and I have been discussing, we need to also be mindful that we're doing that, you know, in a way that reflects more than, you know, a handful of organizations or a handful of causes. Um, and so I think that's, that's a good one. And I'll also, you know, let Marlette describe some as well. I think a couple of different companies are, um, for example, pledging to employ, you know, X amount of Black leaders, which I think is a nice starting point. But I think, or Aaron and I both, I think, are aligned on this, that then the following question is, who are these Black leaders, Right. Are we sure they're represented, representative of kind of like the Black community broadly defined? Oftentimes in the U.S. context, we tend to homogenize individuals who have African descent, right? So when we say Black leaders, are we saying people of different national origins? Are we saying people of different gender identities? You know, it's not a binary. So are we thinking people of all gender identities? Are we thinking people from different class identities, right? Are we thinking of individuals who bring with them a wide variety? of different types of Blackness to kind of this, but also um, hiring more Black people, I'm not sure is going to make your company more inclusive because what is a culture like when they get there? And so I think a measure that I've seen, for example, Microsoft do, which is pre, you know, kind of um, what we're seeing now, was as part of everyone's performance review, incorporating a question or an ask or some some measure to say, okay, you know, is this person, is this leader, is this manager, making sure that, you know, there's an aspect of inclusion, there's an aspect of equity, right? So making it part of your core job responsibility to be actively contributing to a culture of inclusion and a culture of belonging. Because until it is at that granular level where everyone is equally responsible to contributing, then hiring more Black people is not going to do justice. 
because as we've actually seen in some companies who have done a, a lot to hire people of a certain demographic, two years later, where are they? There's two left. And so I think equally as important as the hiring aspect is the retention aspect and the promotions and the, you know, kind of advancement aspect. What are you doing for your current talent? You know, are you advancing them? Why are they not being promoted at the same rate? What is the pay like? Making sure there's equity in pay. So I think it requires companies to, you know, as Aaron likes to call, do a culture audit and to do a deep dive into what are the processes, the structures in place? Is the balance of power such that our employees have the say? And are we doing what we can to ensure that everyone, regardless of their identity or background, but especially in this time, individuals who identify as coming from you know the black community feel as if they can be their full authentic selves? And if the question, if the answer is no, then hire us. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. Exactly. Well done, Marlette. <laughs> oh. I have a question and it's not a fully formed one, but it occurred to me as I was listening to you talk one, this theme of authenticity is word that's, that's often used. I, I like to refer to it as radical realness um, because I feel like that calls forward, like you better be serious about it and willing to stand there in it. And radical actually means rooted etymologically. I didn't know that. So I'm partially sharing that because every time I learn a new etymological thing, I get kind of excited. But that like rooted realness, um, whereas authenticity, I feel like it's kind of like slippery as a word almost. So that theme of authenticity or rooted realness comes up a lot in external communications and marketing. But I worry, and I'm getting to a question. This is a this is the windy route to a question. I swear. That's all right. Sometimes you got to get there. <laughs> no, I'm getting there. Uh, your point around like, if it isn't truly there, these sort of bursts of effort aren't going to sustain. And I'm curious your thoughts, what I feel like we're seeing, and you mentioned this in the article, right, was all of a sudden there's a proliferation of intentionality statements or you know, diversity, equity, inclusion statements, sort of variations on a theme. And you made a really good point, which is like, that's great. And that could just be like, you know, smearing some marketing on something. So what's your sense of like, is this going to, are you seeing enough of a shift that you have optimism that this will be a sustained effort as opposed to just a blip or a moment in time that then, you know, sort of um, peters out? So the funny thing is um, when Marlette and I have been in conversations about this, you know, especially since the article came out, this is inevitably a question as in, you know, like, so what do you all see is happening or what is, what, if anything is different about this moment? Right. And unfortunately I'm going to give you the like law school background answer, which is it depends. (laughs) Um, And I said that earlier because um, I do think that it depends. I think it depends on how much, support the smaller group um, because ultimately the people doing the work right now represent a very small sector of you know of industries or or of these offices or you know period Um, so it depends on how much support they can get over time because i think that otherwise those people will um you know become fatigued and i think that the folks who interest should be to redistribute some of the power that they have 
uh, maybe, you know, will feel like if the people driving that action are sufficiently tired, then I can now sit back and say, oh, we, we've done enough here. Right. And so I think if we can keep the accountability concept alive, then that will go a long way to promote some of that authenticity that you were talking about. Because I think that the authenticity is not there if the foundation is not there, just like you said. And so this moment doesn't need to be the moment where we're all trying to say, we've built this monument to corporate social justice in the past three months. This is the moment where we're saying we've built the foundation that is able to carry us forward for you know the indefinite future of our, of our organization. Marlette, anything to add? Um, I think Erin like really um, sums it up well. I think her and I are often very hesitant to make projections and projections into the future just because she comes from a law background. I come from, you know, the academic background and unless we have the data, you know. <laughs> yeah, you uh, can't do randomized control trials on this. Exactly, right. <laughs> um, but what I what I will say is that, right, if we're looking at likelihoods, right, so if we're looking at, okay, kind of along the theme that Aaron's talking about accountability, if we're looking at companies who say, are, what we're going to do to tackle this is to do a training, the likelihood that this carries on is very low, right? Because if you feel like a training is going to be the end-all be-all, then you're not taking it from an organization. You're not looking at it from an organizational standpoint. You're not doing a deep dive into what about it, what about my culture and my company is causing people to feel this way? But if your approach is something like here is a list and a timeline of things that we have engaged all of our stakeholders in to co-create, you know, more than just trainings. You can do a training, but you can also do what are we doing for promotions? What are we doing for recruitment? What are we doing for onboarding? The entire talent life cycle, how we're going to attack this problem. What are we doing about our branding and our marketing and our advertisement? What are we doing to affect better affect the communities that we care about, right? If your approach is like that, then I think the likelihood that this is more than just a moment, that it's a movement for you is much higher. That to my ear sounds like something that has come up on other episodes, which is this idea of operationalizing diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, and that it sounds so like tactical and kind of dull actually, but it does seem to be a theme that's emerging. It's like you, you have to operationalize it. And I first start to, started thinking about that when you were talking about uh, Microsoft and how, you know, as part of their evaluations, there, there was this question and they had to, you know, point to what have you done? But it's, it's got to be like operationalized at, at every level, you know, both horizontally and vertically is what it sounds like. I think so. And I think you've made, you know, a great observation, which is that sometimes op operationalizing is not sexy and it, you know, probably shouldn't be. I think that, right. I think what we don't want to happen is people taking this moment as an exciting time. I mean, I think there can be some invigorating things about this, this, this movement, but one thing that Marlette and I have talked about when we talk about like things like the culture audit and things, a culture audit, you know, should be treated like an audit audit, right? So if you're excited about, you know, the tax man coming in and pouring over your books, then sure, you know, be that person. But recognize that that's the same, you know, th the same fear of God that gets, you know, stricken into your mind where you think, oh my God, we're about to get audited for this. Mm -hmm. That's the same energy that folks need to have and maintain when it comes to auditing and dismantling, um, you know, the structures that are 
standing between us and true corporate justice, right? And so I think that's maybe the, that will also be a key to how longstanding this thing is, is not, you know, the, the fervor or the excitement that folks have right now, but the degree to which, as Marlette said, this becomes granular and this is a part of your foundation. And sometimes that is just not exciting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just even the word operationalizing. No, that's just not, that's not an exciting word. Nobody's like, yay, ditto for audit, right? Like, right, you're spot on. So between those two words, I feel like listeners are now like, oh, golly. Uh, but there is a rigor. I mean, one, one of the words that, that keeps coming up for me as I, as I listen to both of you talk is this idea of like, this is rigorous. And if you're walking into it, and I think Marla, this is part of what you're saying, like if you're like, let's do a training. Trainings are finite. They're discrete moments in time. And we love, you know, like being able to point to something and touch it and feel it as humans. And so I, I get the allure of a training. And I also think it's such an important point that it's, you know, maybe it's a starting place, but it is not an ending place. Uh, a little bit akin to the, you know, the statements that all of a sudden everybody was putting out. So we're going to transfer a little bit from we've talked, well, we've got, we've, we've, we've bebopped around, but uh, we've been talking mainly about external stuff, marketing and branding, and all the brand sort of sits in between these two things. But who, who are some of the key players? Like if an organization is like, okay, we're ready to get serious about this. Who are some of the key players that they need to be sure they're tapping as resources when implementing social justice marketing for good? So I think that the marketing arm of the organization is has the potential to be both that internal and external voice about the things that are being done by all of the other entities in this entire corporate being, right? So I think that your human resources, right? Or as Marlette has been saying, you know, your talent acquisition departments, all of these people need to be on the exact same page, on the, in the exact same paragraph as you are about your social justice goals. Because when they're aligned with those things and when they are creating um, within each of their little boxes, when they're also driving these initiatives forward, then you have something to really market, right? Because I think that otherwise, you know, what you are marketing is what we've been talking about this entire time is more of this kind of, you know, this fanciful and somewhat hollow, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we all lived in here? But I think that when you have all of these traditionally somewhat more removed from the social justice space entities working hand in hand, so again, talent, I mean, you know, and that, that can even mean our leave policies are reflective of this. And I think that Marlette has some great, you know, nuggets on, on that. But when you're all working together, then you are making marketing an easier job, right? Um, so I would say to look at the folks who are already in your house and doing these things and how can everybody get aligned on, on the same page. Can I just add a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think another, I agree completely with what Aaron is saying. And I think one of the great things about kind of, you know, working with the existing folks who are doing this work is that kind of like the greatest aspect of marketing is that, you know, you don't even have to have your marketing team work for it or do it. It's that the employees are marketing for you. The employees are like, our company is just that company. Okay. We are all here about social justice. So you don't even have to 
make kind of the case for why you were doing X, Y, and Z because their culture is such that folks are feeling it. So folks are going to go on those different platforms we were talking about earlier and say it. And then that then attracts the next crop of folks who are equally as dedicated to continue doing this kind of work to build the culture, right? Because then now you're attracting the very people that you want to come in to help, you know, create and foster this. So I think part of doing the work is not even necessarily looking at like, well, how can I market this? It's like, no, do the work and the marketing will come because you're doing such a great of a job that the employees are then marketing for you. But if your goal is to to do something that we say that we can put on, you know, Twitter or, you know, get a New York Times article about, then you're going about it wrong. The end goal should not be to market this thing. The end goal should be to create the culture that the employees want to market for you, if that makes sense. Yes, it totally makes sense. And you actually preemptively answered the question I was going to ask (laughs) was around, you know, it's like, so, you know, I work with a lot of clients and have for almost 20 years, mainly nonprofits and then also foundations and, and whatnot. And so a lot of the work I do is, you know, mission, vision, values, not in that order, but that's, I realized now that actually that's not the order we ever do it. And we do values, brand, personality, vision, mission. Anyway. Um, but we always say mission, vision, values. And one of the things I'm seeing is definitely folks saying, Hey, we want to add diversity, equity, inclusion, access for some, you know, to our values. My question back is like, but are you living the values already? Because you, you can't just like tack it on. I mean, it, it, there are there are things, you know, I can think of some examples where, you know, you can, you can have it as an aspiration, but I have great trepidation about organizations who kind of start marketing it externally as a way to hopefully live into it internally. That seems ass backwards. I would agree with that. Marlette was saying something the other day. Uh, do you remember what you were saying the other day about uh, like priorities versus values? Because I think that that's pretty much kind of spot on to what you were saying here. Yeah. So um, essentially kind of a lot of companies try to make diversity, equity, inclusion, and now social justice, since it's a new buzzword, a priority, right? So um, we kind of see trends in more companies saying, it is our priority for the 2020 to 2025, you know, long-term plan to do that. But priorities are things that shift and that change and that kind of go with whatever the, you know, larger conversation is, right? Um, And oftentimes, diversity, equity, inclusion as a priority can be sixth or seventh out of 10, or it can be 11th or 12th. Whereas values are those that are kind of embedded into your institutional framework. Values are things that guide how you all will engage, how you all behave, how you all create whatever product or deliverable it is that you are trying to, you know, help further whatever, you know, it is that your your organization is doing. And so I do believe diversity, equity, inclusion as, as a value is important, but I agree that it shouldn't be tacked on. And I think if you're going to incorporate it as a value, it should be something that is brainstormed and focus groups with all of the stakeholders, including your employees. And it should be directly tied to two things. It should be tied to whatever the, the outcome is of your business, right? So if it's for a healthcare institution, it's why do we need diverse equity inclusion? Well, we need culturally competent doctors and nurses. We need individuals who are going to be able to interact with patients from a variety of backgrounds. 
But more than just diversity, equity, and inclusion, we are a company that also strives for social justice because we care about the communities um, that our employees are coming from and we want to support them. So it needs to both be tied to whatever it is your organization is advancing, but also the kind of, you know, moral ethical reason, which is we care about you, which means we care about your communities, which means we care about social justice and advancing a culture where you know that those things are kind of cared for. I don't know if you have additional thoughts on that, Erin. No, I think you've summed it up. I think that kind of as Erica was getting to, it's, it's ass backwards, right? If you are trying to put this message out and then figure out how you can, you know, live up to that as opposed to, as you were just saying, um, here's something that will become foundational for us. And when we are already on the path to living it, you know, sure, we can put it external to the cow come out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love, I love that distinction between priorities and values. I, I always think of it kind of like your, your values should be horizontal. They should show up and re- regardless of what the priority is, somebody should be able to see you living the values in every single one of them. And then, you know, in the, in the context of marketing, so I have this somewhat nerdy stance um, that you shouldn't have marketing goals. Um, you should have marketing objectives because marketing is in service to mission. It's in service to achieving you know, whatever your, your organizational goals are and your company goals are. And so I, I'm, I'm mentioning this because I, I really want to reinforce you know, for listeners like this idea of, and even down at that level, so absolutely at the company organizational level in terms of priorities and goals, and then we have to see them play out in your marketing objectives and how you're actually carrying out the marketing. So as a, for instance, I'll reference this podcast that, that aired a couple of weeks ago uh, about how to be more inclusive broadly in terms of, you know, deaf and hard of hearing people who have, you know, are blind or have issues with sight and in really the advice from uh, Elizabeth Ralston, who was the guest there and she's deaf. She was like, you know, you have to use universal design principles, like from the get go design for everybody. And guess what? It's better for absolutely everybody. So I think if we think about this from all these different angles, that sort of universal design principle, um, which is its own little thing, but really hold, holds true. But I'm hoping folks can sort of see this like, if, here, if these are the vertical priorities, here are the, are the values. And if you're not going to live from out on all the things, then don't say it yet. You're not quite ready to say it yet is what I'm hearing from both of you. So I, I want to talk about like what can companies do to integrate, and you've, you've touched on this, but what, what can companies and organizations do to integrate social justice into their organizational framework? We've talked a bit about operationalizing, but what specific tips would you have for folks who, are, who, who want to really go there? Sounds like an audit, Erin. I feel like the word that's going to come out is audit, <laughs> audit. <laughs> so, well, we don't have to say it anymore because I think we've already said it, but I also think um, that not to shamelessly plug the article, but we do, you know, kind of give people a, you know, uh, A to Z of how you can start to do this. Um, and what we created there really was in response to the idea that we knew that there would be organizational leaders who would be like, hey, I, even regardless of how your intentions may lie, I think that we knew there would be people who said, I really want to do this. I just have no idea where to start. And so I think that um, the, the starting place is by doing your research, both internal as far as your company and as Marlette is saying, you know, with your employees, recognizing that they are a huge driver of your marketing capabilities. 
learning where your deficits are. Because to be honest, as Marlette has, has said many times, the Black experience is not a monolith. And that means that what we may be able to observe at some of these bigger companies that have Pinterest or whomever, or an Adidas, you know, whose actions weren't lining up, their issues may not be my issues at my company of 400 employees, right? Um, and so I need to start by doing that research internally. And from there, um, I need to be transparent to say, um, hey, guys, I know that things have not been great or perfect around here. Here's where we're starting. We've gathered this. You know, we've done surveys and focus groups and, you know, and audits. And from that, now we're ready to draft our plan. So I think that's where I would start. And if Marla, do you have anything to add to, to that? I think I welcome it. Yeah, I think Erin um, really did a, a really great job at kind of summarizing kind of the the kind of data-driven action plan that needs to happen. And I think in the piece, we kind of highlight a few concrete and tangible strategies that result from that, right? So like we said earlier, ensuring manager performance reviews, assess whether leaders are cultivating culture for inclusion, thinking about co-creating with and even financially supporting you know, community partners on local social justice initiatives or social justice initiatives that directly relate to whatever the mission is of your company. It's things like recognizing employee acts of service. So Oftentimes right now, a lot of Black employees who are leading employee resource groups are being relied on, uncompensated, um, you know, to do this work. And it's not a part of their core job function, but they're just deeply passionate about it. So what are we doing with these existing infrastructures that can do a lot for change? Are we amplifying it? Are senior leadership are wearing that and sponsoring them, right? One thing that I've seen in, in some companies is that they'll have two executive sponsors. They'll have one that matches the affinity of the group and they'll have one that does not, right? So it's a learning opportunity for the person who does not match that affinity to highlight and amplify that group. And so that's another thing that you can do. It's also thinking about the specific structures, right? Are you kind of having, you know, asking, you know, what's your salary history? We know that women in particular are less likely to negotiate. And even when they do negotiate, they're less likely to get, you know, what they're asking for because of our gender, because we have a society that tends to prioritize, you know, men being paid more. And so, making sure we ask, we don't ask those types of questions, making sure we pay people based on, you know, the salary range that we have set for, making sure low level entry pay is not something that we do, inadequate benefits, unpaid internships for folks who come from lower class backgrounds. If they have, you know, this prestigious kind of, you know, internship here that's unpaid, but then this internship that is paid, they're going to go with not, you know, as great of a company, but hey, I need to take care of myself and take care of my family. So making sure that we're providing equitable opportunity for anyone to actively kind of participate and partake in in, our, in the company. And those are just a few tangible things that can come out of this audit, out of this review process of, of what it is that's going on in your organization. I love your, your offering of like, the counter to audit, a review. It's a review. (laughs) I want us to stick with audit because I I want people to take it that seriously. I want to go back to something you said about the presenting Black culture as this monolith. And I'm wondering, to the extent that you, you want to answer this, which you're not obligated, but it occurs to me that purposely perpetuating it as a, as a, as a monolith is kind of in service to white fragility. And what I mean by that is that makes it less nuanced. 
It means we as white folks don't have to do as much work to figure it out. That's come fear for us. And I'm just, I'm just curious your thoughts on that and whether or not it happens intentionally. I think it happens unintentionally a whole heck of a lot. Um, so I teach a, a graduate level marketing class at the University of Washington, marketing for social impact. And on the first day, we talk about implicit bias. And we talk about that first because you have to be aware of what you're bringing to, to the equation. Because part of what you do with marketing is perpetuate, you know, you have a choice, what I say to them is you have a choice to perpetuate dominant paradigms. And if you are not proactive by default, that's probably what you're going to end up doing. Or you can proactively try to disrupt those narratives, right? And lift up other voices and, and really integrate and elevate diversity in that way. But you have to be really proactive about it, especially for white students. And so I'm just wondering if there, it, like, what's your opinion or take on, is that purposefully, is that monolith purposely perpetuated or do you think it is just by default? Um, I think that it's definitely easier because I think that there is a, there's probably a sense of personal and corporate overwhelm when we think about how do we make things right. <laughs> um, and I think that for a large, yes, for a significant percentage of the people walking around in America who um, identify as Black, um, much of that does originate from a shared um, ancestral experience of slavery. But I think that there is an equal weight that should be assigned to folks who are outside of that, um, that specific identity and their experiences need to be considered when we think about how to create an equitable space for Black employees. Um, and so I will, with that, I will turn it over to Marlet on, on that exact concept. Yeah, so I think when we even begin to think about the origins, for example, of African Americans and this country, as well as all over where they were kind of, um, or individuals of African descent who were kind of um, forced to, you know, become slaves in different countries, it started there, right? It started with not caring about who, you know, we were kind of taking from their homes and bringing over to the U.S. because the very indiv individuals of African descent weren't even human, right? It's been codified into law. It's been codified into corporate jargon. It's been become a part, a seamless part of our discourse and of society. And it's because the origins are such where we never tried to understand the specific nuance. We never tried to understand that, you know, people were coming from literally, you know, different um Areas with different languages, different cultures, different customs, a history, a long history of things that we don't even think about today um, when we're looking at educational curricula for students. It's Black people started with slavery. No, no, that's, that's not true. So I think it's become something that has been reified and consistently affirmed in everything that we think about, whether it be our educational system, whether it be when we see things on the news and it talks about Black on Black crime, which is not a thing, whether it be 
you know, because we never talk about white on white crime or Asian on Asian crime, right? I think it's just become embedded as part of our, it's part of the American origin story. So then it's become a part of the American corporate story. And because of that, there, since there's never been a, a care to look at the nuance, why is there a care now? When something becomes embedded in the way that you think, you breathe, you, you think, you know, then there's never a need to question it because that's always how things have been. And I think for a very long time, folks who come from these communities have advocated for the fact that our lived experiences are very different, they're varied. And I'm happy that more attention is being paid to the fact that it's not a monolith and that there needs to be different structures put into place to better educate individuals on why that's the case. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, maybe we need to be talking about operationalizing the unraveling of the monolith. <laughs> I, I think we do. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> <not gonna> be... <laughs> yeah. We don't have time today, Maybe that's our word. We do. <laughs> uh, no, no, we're not. <laughs> but Erin, I thought we would have that all covered in this one episode. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of time, I want to be mindful of both of your time. I know that you are very, very busy and very in demand. I know you said you don't like to make predictions for the future, but where do you see the conversation and the movement headed as we, as we look forward into the future? Where do, you, where, where do you hope it goes? I hope that we're, I think the thing that I'd like to see materialize as a part of the future is consistency. So I would like to see, again, the people who are doing this work right now being joined by the people who are interested in, but maybe not sure how they can, you know, fully be engaged. So I want the numbers to grow, right? I, I want the, I want the army of people who are ready to do this to be larger. And I want that group to then, you know, be able to, you know, then kind of create this ripple effect where they are then evangelizing these concepts to, you know, a greater and a greater sphere of people. So that even at this most external sphere, even if you have not yet fully bought into or understand why you should buy into the principles of social justice, you are at least aware of them and you're at least aware that you are on the periphery, right? And so I'm hoping that that kind of ripple effect can persist over time. I want, a, I want, the, I want the future to be marked by this notion that we don't that we're not racing toward toward it that we're working toward it and that sometimes that is a very long process and so i think i'd like to see a consistent reinforcement of accountability for organizations and for people and for companies and i'd like to see kind of that mind shift where the even when this initial spark has died down well that's okay because we you know now we've got this you know whole wildfire that is already burning it's a marathon on a sprint it is <laughs> marlette what would you add I completely agree with everything that aaron said i think the only thing that i would add is i guess i would hope to see our mindset change around equity inclusion and social justice as some sort of tangible or finite thing and for us to grapple with the idea that this is more um, of an evolution of thinking, an evolution of being, and an evolution of doing, and that our current approach right now will not fit our approach 
two years from now and that that's okay. And that as students and learners of even these evolving concepts and terms, right? We weren't really talking about social justice in such a large round two years ago that it's okay to make mistakes, but what's the most important thing to do is to own those mistakes and then work with folks who are experts to kind of understand what caused that and what can I do better? And to recognize that this is, you know, like I'm saying this is a journey, this is an evolution and we're not going to get everything right. And that's okay. And what we're doing now, two years from now, we'll say, wow, I can't believe we did that. That's what I was just going to say is I hope we look back and we feel like sort of oddly proud to be like, well, we messed that up. We wouldn't do that today. And that that's going to be a, that's going to be a sign of like progress. It's never ending. Like this stuff will never end because identity consistently evolves. The, our, con- our, con- our conceptualization of what identity is now versus 10 years ago is so different. So I hope that, you know, that's one thing that we can kind of learn to, to accept. So I'm hearing embrace the idea that it's a journey, that our identities are going to shift along the way, and that we're going to make mistakes. And that's part of the journey built into it and to be okay with that. Yeah. I ask every guest on the podcast the, the same final question, uh, and it goes back to the, root, the, the roots of words. So inspiration originally meant to take breath, to breathe in, and motivation is about taking action. So I'd love to close by hearing from both of you what, uh, what keeps you motivated to do this work, because it is uh, hard work and it's going to be a lot of work going forward, and, and what inspires you? So the inspiration for me would be kind of the things that we talked about in the very beginning, sort of that personal through line for me. I'm outside of work work. I'm a pretty creative person. Like I planned my own wedding, you know, things like that. And I think that, so that's where I draw, that's what feeds, I think, my ability to continue to do the work work is to find ways to infuse that creativity into my work. Um, And then what motivates me is probably the same thing that motivates many, I'll say many Black women in my, um, you know, in who are doing whatever the work that they're doing, which is the ability to learn over time that you are building a table of your own where, you know, the extent to which you have a voice um, at the other table doesn't matter. And so I think that's what motivates me is that drive to keep, you know, building that table. And I want my table to have enough seats for everybody. That's beautiful, Erin. It's a beautiful visual. Marlette. Oh, I can't follow that. <laughs> I'm feeling bad for you, Marlette. Like, <laughs> end the recording. Like, um, P- plus one, what everything that Erin just said. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. I think it um, is. I'm inspired by the exact same thing Aaron's inspired by. So I will not go there. But I think one of the things that motivates me is probably these aha moments, right? So giving workshops or doing programming or consulting or whatever it may be, and having someone walk up and say, I never thought about that that way. This is how I'm going to go and kind of implement this in my own kind of context. And so literally kind of through the work that we do, helping folks learn that they can be their own change agents, that this work isn't necessarily the responsibility of people tasked to do it, but it's all of our responsibility and them empowering themselves to 
kind of do the work as well, I think is extremely motivating. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you to both of you, Aaron Marlette, for saying yes when I asked you to be on the show and come share even more of your wisdom. I know you didn't want to keep shamelessly promoting it. I will keep shamelessly promoting uh, and advocating that everybody go read the Harvard Business Review article about woke washing. I will, I've already incorporated it into my marketing syllabus. And we appreciate you. Oh, yeah. It was like instantly in there. No joke. <laughs> I think that came directly after I invited you on the show. I'm not quite, I don't quite remember the sequencing, but it was pretty instantaneous because this is, you know, it's such a beautiful example of how we need to, a concrete example of how, how we need to be shifting our thinking around marketing and, and being human. So thank you. I'm so grateful to both of you for being here today with us all the way from Dallas, Texas. Uh, and thank you listeners, as always, for being on this journey with me and today with Erin and Marlette. You're the best. Do good, be well, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening and thanks for making our world a better place.